And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm your host for this weekly series on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the show where we think about all things manufacturing. We think about the headlines, the economic headlines, the political headlines. They matter a great deal to U.S. manufacturing performance. But in this time of great change, we have to go deeper. We have to think about the evolution of the factory floor, the evolution of the factory and the goods-producing process itself. The key here is new, new science, new technology, new markets, new economic thinking, and we are here to help our audience, our listening audience, understand how all of this is going to contribute to a new day in U.S. manufacturing. Our guests, and that's my pledge to you throughout this series, is are going to be the best at what they do. We're going to have top economists, knowledgeable scientists, prolific authors, people who have traveled the world and understand manufacturing on a global scale. And today is no exception. Sean Duberbach has really carved out a niche for himself in the economics world. He is an economist, but he's also a futurist. He's a trendcaster, and his expertise sits, interestingly, on the balance between economics and technology, between the conceptual and the physical. And he's greatly sought after by many corporations, trade groups, etc., for fully understanding how change and disruption is going to affect their lives, their members' lives, their companies' lives. It is my great pleasure to introduce him. He's an internationally recognized thought leader and top-rated keynote speaker. He's known for his speaking. He delivers pragmatic and provocative insights on the trends, technologies, and paradigms transforming the globe. Today, he's president of the Abrio Institute, the institute which takes its name from the Greek, and Sean, I'm going to get it wrong, Abtu? Well, what, how do you pronounce that word? No, you've got it. Yep. Abtu. How about that meaning tomorrow? He helps leaders prepare for uncertain, divergent futures. His clients, as I said, are Fortune 100 and Global 1000 companies, startups, government agencies, nonprofit organizations. He writes extensively on disruptive technological shifts, widely published. His analysis has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Washington Post, Wired, which is a very interesting Silicon Valley uh, publication, if nobody knows, Los Angeles Times, Barron's, and he's been on the air with CNBC, with Bloomberg, NPR, CBS, and other media outlets. Sean, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to my show. Well, thank you so much, Cliff. It is wonderful to be here with you. You know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the theme of this show is very simple. Economists, and particularly economists who study the manufacturing sector, frequently use the nomenclature of change, innovation, disruption. You hear about it multiple times a day. You read about it multiple times a day. But we really have to, because we are dealing with a physical entity that's changing shape, that's changing form 
and the for, uh, that is our manufacturing sector, we have to be precise. We have to really understand what those terms mean, and that, that's, that's why you ha- I have you on, because I want our audience, as we go forward, and we're going to be continually talking about these disruptive trends, to really understand what disruption and innovation means, and that's why I have you on the show. So first question for you, standard metrics, such as <clears throat> excuse me, industry-funded R&D and patents, have persistently shown U.S. manufacturing to be a comparatively innovation-intensive sector. We talk about it all your time. Is it your view uh, that the current period, the current period, is nonetheless unique, even in its own regard, for U.S. manufacturing process innovation? Is this an unusual time, even for manufacturing, in terms of the intensity and the impact of change? Uh, I think it is, and I think you're seeing the groundwork be put in place for a period that will usher in tremendous change in the way that we operate as manufacturers. And you've seen this time and again, going back to steam power in the U.K., interchangeable machine-made parts here in the U.S., mass production in the U.S., uh, the, the creation of quality manufacturing in Japan, You've seen it time and again, and I think the period we're entering into now is going to usher in a period of pronounced change. I talk about how we're moving from digitization to datafication, so a period where data starts to really drive some of these processes. And you're seeing that across the board. When I talk with manufacturers today and those who are building equipment, for the factory floor, they often highlight how they're building in sensors today and they aren't fully anticipating how some of this data will be utilized, but they know they want to collect it, catalog it, organize it, structure it now so that they can redeploy it back into that manufacturing environment in the future. You hear the word disruption a lot. I read it in the economics literature. It's frequently used in this very tech-aware era, what exactly does it mean for an innovation to be disruptive? And are are we in an era where manufacturing process innovation is frequently crossing the line to disruption? So I like to think about disruption as not just change, but as change in the rate of change. And so it, it signals that it's more than just changing processes and a changing way of doing business. That is, uh, of course, something that we continuously see. But disruption is is more than that. Disruption is, again, this change in the rate of change, and that's what uh, companies need to to see. So to your question is this current era of manufacturing process innovation crossing that line of disruption. I think in some ways it it is, and in some areas it is. It obviously isn't going to be uh, uniformly distributed. It isn't going to be happening in every sector at all times. Yes, we'll be seeing change in all of these sectors at all times, but, but not often change that changes the rate of change. So not necessarily change that needs to be addressed in very different ways. And I think that's what you're seeing happen when we talk about disruption is 
a, a rate of change that requires a new way of thinking and a new approach to doing business. There's a, always a temptation and a, I think a need to measure all of this. Estimating the growth impact of innovations and disruptions has really become an essential task for economists who, who study manufacturing. I'm going to ask you a question. I wonder if growth impacts aren't often underestimated. One of the unique features, of course, of an advanced economy manufacturing sector is interconnections of various kinds between industry subsectors. And they, these interconnections happen because of supply chain uh, complexity, innovation spillover impacts, and other things. Do you think that these interconnections magnify the growth impact of innovations and disruptions as they spread from industry subsector to industry subsector? I, I think they do accelerate and magnify the, the growth impact. And to your early comment, I do think that it is very easy to underestimate growth impacts, especially in a world defined by and increasingly defined by digitization and then datification. It's especially easy to underestimate these growth impacts when you're dealing with those type of dynamics. And, and one of the things that digitization and, and ultimately datification bring is the ability to um, to drive massive economies to scale in certain attributes. So as we move from a, a scarce resource to an abundant resource, we can, in economic terms, waste that resource. We can deploy it widely. We can use it heavily. And you see that as consumers every day. Think about how often you check the weather, for example. Back when we relied just on the nightly newscast, you would check the weather but, you know, maybe once a day, twice a day, maybe you'd get it in the morning newspaper and you'd get it in the evening news. Now, as we've moved towards digital environments where you can check the weather in your on your phone constantly, you can check it online constantly, or you can simply say, Alexa, what's the weather today? We find that we're, we're doing simple tasks like checking the weather multiple times a day. So digitization in lowering the cost of that information has significantly increased the, the rate at which we can gather that information and use that information. And you see that type of example showing up in lots of different places. Uh, we might have checked the mail once a day when it was physical mail that was delivered. Now, as it becomes digital, we check it constantly throughout the day. And so it's very easy to underestimate the impact of some of those digital tools because they flow so freely into these environments. Location-aware information using GPS, for example, is another example where we've gone from a scarcity to a surplus. And so we can deploy that information widely, and we can integrate that information into our systems significantly. I'm going to push it one more level. Beyond domestic industry interconnections, Global manufacturing supply chains have certainly grown in size and in complexity in recent decades. Thus, it seems possible that innovation and disruptions will not only spread from industry to industry, but from country to country. Do you think that's correct? I think that's correct at some level. I, one of the things we have started to see is that the, the value chains that define good 
producing industries have actually become less trade intensive uh, relative to where they they have been. So you see that with um, uh, uh, and at the same time, these value chains are becoming more regionally concentrated. So that's certainly true with things like the automotive industry, with computers, with electronics. Uh, they've become more regionally concentrated. In, if you look at Asia, you look at Europe. If you look at North American trade, for example, uh, studies have suggested that certain vehicle components are crossing borders seven or eight times in, 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 as part of that production process. So they're moving across borders in these regionally concentrated areas of, of value creation and of value chains. And so you have both of these forces playing out. They're becoming less globally intensive. At the same time, they're becoming more regionally concentrated. In my next two questions, I'm going to first ask you about people. Then I'm going to ask you about jobs. Let's first talk about demographics as a driver of all this, of manufacturing process innovation. There are many indications that either flattening or even declining labor force, labor force growth trajectories in the advanced economies and even many emerging market economies have been very naturally motivating process innovation investment. Do you agree with that? And do you see this as continuing amidst talk of recent talk of such things as a quote unquote baby bust in the US? I think if you look at economic growth over the last 50 years, it was evenly divided by both labor growth and productivity growth. So productivity growth contributed about 1.8% to annual growth. Uh, and and labor growth contributed about 1.75%. So you end up with annual growth over the last 50 years of about 3.5%. And these are global figures. If you look forward over the, next, over the next 50 years, those changing demographics are going to impact labor significantly. And labor is expected to only contribute about 0.3% to annual growth over the next uh, 50 years. And so we're going to need significantly more growth from capital and from productivity gains in order to match the global growth that we've experienced over the over the last 50 years. And so we're going to need to see a, a lot more innovation with respect to all aspects of manufacturing, not just the process of manufacturing, but throughout that entire value production and, and value chain in order to offset some of the shifting demographics that we're seeing, not just here in the U.S., but, but really globally. Let's now talk about innovation, disruption, and jobs, particularly when it comes to robotics. Fears of what Keynes called technological unemployment have grown for some, while others seem less concerned as they kind of envision human robot teams. Some call them cobots. Where do you fall in terms of your thinking on that spectrum? Well, what's, what's your view of the jobs impact from robotics, but more generally from process innovation? So I, it, I think the research makes it pretty clear that jobs are impacted, especially ones that are routine in nature. We've seen that 
automation and robotics have influenced the, the type of jobs that have grown and the types of jobs that have declined in nature. And, and over the periods studied over the last couple of decades, it's been clear that automation is very good at, uh, and, and robotics computing is very good at automating routine tasks and not so good at automating non-routine tasks. And so you've seen not only jo job count growth, but also wage growth in the, the edges of that distribution, the areas where non-routine tasks flourish. So on one end, you have low-income tasks, let's think of gardening, that are taking place in non-routine tasks, very hard to automate. And then you have on the high-income part of that distribution, things that require a lot of cognitive skills and, and cognitive thought growing as well. Uh, I think those dynamics will remain in play, and, the, and those are some of the things that we will see in the decade to come. Cliff, you pointed out the role of cobots. So in the past, we really kept robots and humans separate. And if you looked at a factory floor 10 years ago, anything that was being automated, anything that was really being managed by robots would have been caged off and, and kept a safe distance from humans. Uh, we're seeing that shift and change. I think cobots have the potential to be extremely influential over the next decade, and there'll be a, a much stronger focus on that human and ro robot interaction. So we'll see that continue to flourish, and we'll see entirely new applications become uh, de developed in those areas. We'll, we'll start to use humans and robots in, in new ways, as you pointed out, human-robot teams to do entirely new tasks. And as a result, we'll, we'll redefine some of the manufacturing processes that we've long known, and over, over time, hopefully, ideally, discover new ways of, of doing things, new ways of enhancing productivity, just like previous innovations allowed us to unleash large amounts of productivity gains. In the last two questions, I'm going to ask you about U.S. competitiveness concerns. First one, some fear that the U.S. is, is either behind or getting behind major competitors in impl implementing disruptive process technologies in its manufacturing sector. Some, some would say that we're not disrupting enough. Do you think that the United States needs an explicit technology policy for its manufacturing sector? Should it be a stated goal of U.S. public policy to ensure innovation and disruption on a par with major competitors? I, obviously, you've seen other countries implement an industrial policy in these type of areas, notably China with some of their long-term planning objectives and long-term policy goals is a country that from a very uh, high level implements these type of policies. I, I think one of the risks is we always ask this in tandem with, um, does the U.S. also need subsidies in certain areas? Uh, what I would rather see is audacious goals. I'm a big believer in competitions, in innovation challenges and prizes, 
Uh, I, you can look at what some of the DARPA initiatives have done to greatly expand our understanding of things like self-driving vehicles. So I would love to see more type of initiatives like that, having real innovation challenges and prizes that um, that will spur innovation in a way that will help us gain new insights into uh, into some of these technologies and new applications for some of these technologies. Final question. Getting even deeper into the roots of concern about the U.S., many are concerned about inadequate U.S. investment in basic science, basic scientific research. Can you address this? What does the U.S. really need to do in terms of scientific research investment? Uh, and again, here, I really like the, the use of challenges and prizes that motivate a competitive environment that allow universities to uh, invest their resources in, in an attempt to uh, win these prizes. I do think we have seen the U.S. investment in, in basic research fall off o over uh, the last few decades, and that's an area where we could see the U.S. return. We've also seen corporate investment in basic research fall off. If you think about Xerox Park and some of these others that used to invest a tremendous amount in, in research, we've seen that um, you know fall off. I think there's still a tremendous amount of, of opportunity and lots of new emerging areas. We've seen a lot of development in recent decades around additive manufacturing and how that's changing prototyping, really pushing rapid prototyping. There's clearly a lot of experiments taking place right now using virtual reality, augmented reality, and, and ultimately mixed reality, changing how we train employees, changing the type of tools that employees have. You're seeing the use of things like drones with three-dimensional cameras change how we measure things like raw resources on a job site. And so there's, I think there's a lot of innovation that's being employed across all of the, the manufacturing base and, and really across a variety of other sectors. And we'll start to reap the uh, return on some of that investment in, in the decades to come. I think one of the big challenges for corporations is how to innovate at scale and how to implement some of these innovations at scale and how to not only digitize your environment, but then using the, the data that is in in your systems and in your processes to then find entirely new ways of, of doing business and also discovering entirely new services that businesses can offer their constituents so that they can push further downstream. Sean Duberbeck, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me today. Glad to be with you, Cliff. Listeners, we will be pursuing these issues, these words in episodes to come. They are the basis of what's happening underneath the feet of the manufacturing sector, and they're essential to understand. Next episode, however, my guest will be Don Levins, 
chief economist of the National Electrical Manufacturers Association. Until then, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you that manufacturing matters. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.